There's no one that's female. I mean, why in the hell would I think that I can be successful? Women are not making it to the top of any profession. So it's a very male-dominated environment. We do exist in this society where women in entertainment are discarded. There are women over 40 making pop music, but you won't hear them on commercial radio. And this is why conversation between women and music has never been more important. Hi, and welcome to Control, the podcast where we speak to incredibly inspiring women working in the music and creative industries, in control of their music and in control of their careers. I'm Chelsea Wilson, your host, and in this episode, I'm speaking to Managing Director of Music New South Wales, Emily Collins. Originally from the Northern Territory, Emily has over 18 years experience in arts and entertainment, working for organisations such as Darwin Festival, FBI Radio and Sydney Writers Festival. In 2015, she took the helm as Managing Director of Music New South Wales, the state peak body for music. In 2020, she co-created the I Lost My Gigs survey, which tracked major losses for the industry and informed funding and recovery initiatives. In this conversation, I ask Emily about the state of play in New South Wales post-lockdown, the road to economic recovery, and how her background in marketing influences her leadership style. Emily was chatting to me from the Music New South Wales offices, so there's a little bit of background noise in this episode, but it's definitely worth a listen. This is Emily Collins, In Control. Emily, welcome to the Control Podcast. I'm so excited to chat with you. Thanks for having me today. Can you tell us what the feeling is like at the moment in Sydney in terms of the live scene? I've seen the news recently of a few venue shutdowns. What's the current state of play? Look, I think there's a there's two sort of feelings. One is, uh, you know, a sense of uh, depleted energy. You know, it's been a really long, hard two years. And because of that, we're seeing changes. But at the same time, I think we're now um, seeing a sense of optimism and of new opportunities that we haven't seen in a while. And so I think, you know, there's a bit of a rejuvenation spirit happening here, which is really nice to see after such a long time. And, you know, everyone's um, pretty tired, but I think there's a lot of really incredibly dedicated people who are committed to seeing new things happen. A major part of your role as Managing Director of Music New South Wales is advocacy. Last year you were quoted by the Music Network magazine as saying that you'd seen a shift in government attitude towards live music from a policy perspective. Can you explain what you meant by that and do you think that's still the case a year later? Yeah, so I think... What I meant by that was that, um, you know, for a long time in New South Wales, we'd had not a combative relationship, but I think maybe a, a bit of misunderstanding between the music industry and government around, um, you know, like with the lockout laws and with like festival restrictions and regulations. There was often, you know, a bit of policies that were not at all conducive to a thriving music industry. And so we felt like, um, you know, after many years of building relationships and having great conversations with government that we've now 
turned a bit of a corner and I think there really is a sense of opportunity from government to um, support and help leverage the music industry for a, you know, a, a better thriving nighttime economy. So if you look at the 24-hour commissioner's office, um, live entertainment is a real big part of their um, understanding of what a nighttime economy is. Um, you know, we, Throughout COVID, we've seen financial commitments that are completely unprecedented in New South Wales and with the with those uh, financial you know investments and I guess the strategic side of that recovery money we've been able to uh, communicate what how we work better you know that the music industry is a commercial industry um, we're not a strict you know arts non-profit space and so really try, um, mm. building that understanding within government about you know the portfolios we sit um, across and yeah, getting a better building that sense of understanding within government has been a really long slow process but I think actually government has done a lot of work to signify that they're ready and willing to help now which is really incredible. It's great to see the support also that they've given to Support Act in terms of responding to the mental health crisis that's really affected the music community and behind the scenes workers. What do you think the next steps are there in terms of supporting the sort of mental health recovery? I think from look, I think it's really complicated. I think there's a lot of time, and and uh, uh, I'm not going in with the easy questions, <laughs> am I? <laughs> what to control? How do we solve everything? Um, you know, it is. I think going to be a bit of a slow process of rejuvenation. Mm. Um, it's. Uh, what does renewal look like for our industry? And I think, you know, those um, industry professionals who have worked through COVID or, you know, had to find other work, you know, there's a real sense of um, them still needing support. And I think one of the best things our industry can do to support them is get back to business as quick as possible so that there's income because financial distress is real distress. You know, it's very hard to live a, you know, a, a have a good well-being if you're if you're financially you know stressed. So that's one thing we're really looking at is what sustainability looks like, what renewal looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's not an easy fix. Um, COVID has certainly wreaked havoc uh, on a lot of businesses across Australia and the world. So you know we're not alone in that. But yeah, I think a long but clear path ahead. I heard recently that Ireland is looking into and trying out the minimum wage for artists policy and I know some other countries have looked at that is that something that interests you as a concept to look at in Australia or New South Wales yeah look I think it's a really complicated concept in a way of you know like when you I'm I'm such a practical person that I start thinking through the practicalities of what that looks like how do you choose who gets paid Mm. you know does everyone get paid who pays for that um what's the expectation on delivery and you know that's just my problem-solving brain going um, over time. But I think, you know, the the real premise behind the sort of universal basic income specifically for, for um, musicians and creative people is that it's about the value that they contribute to society and that it's not necessarily um, a financially stable career path, but that there isn't a, a, what, I guess, a a contribution to our communities and it's about valuing that so I completely support the principle of that and and 
you know, supporting artists, whether that's a living wage or whether it's just like a lot more funding and support for the incredible input that artists make to our community. Yeah, I'm not really decided. I, I mean, of course, in an ideal world, I'd love to see it. It'd be amazing. But I'm, I guess, ever the pragmatist mm. and trying to work out like, how does that work? How does that work? Are we about to flip to a, a living wage model? It's, it's a really long, hard road to get that up. And, you know, is it federal? Is it state run? You know, all those sort of questions that come to my mind. I think we need to um, connect with our counterparts in Ireland in a year or so and hear how that's going, maybe get them out for big sound or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's, so, it's fantastic that they've been able to do it and I'd love to know how they got it up and how it's working, yeah. Because, yeah, obviously we'd love that. I think your point around society valuing artists and creative output is a really important one. In terms of advocacy from our peak bodies, a lot of our advocacy seems to be focused on government and getting government acknowledgement. What are your thoughts around advocating to the general public more about the importance of music because if the general public are more invested and interested in music and consuming it more and wanting to value it more then potentially that's going to give us that economic boost because I think structurally Australia in particular has such a sports culture and I think about programs like Auskick for example where I have nothing to do with AFL I don't have kids that play AFL. I don't have anything to do with it, but I've heard of Auskick. And I remember when it came out, the campaign around Auskick was huge and the kind of implementation nationally around getting kids from all different states invested from an early age in the national sport has kind of got this excitement about the national sport. And, you know, it's kind of like the McDonald's Happy Meal or the Commonwealth Bank, you know, kids programs, the Dolomites, things like that, that get you on board as, you know, part of the culture at a young age and then you grow up and become a footy fan. So what would you think about some kind of advocacy or, you know, work in in the general public space? I think we're really at a point where we need audience development campaigns. You know, we, we really need to look at fans of music as being our biggest allies in better supporting industry development. Um, so many surveys and studies into like, you know, what um, music participation looks like in this country. And, you know, there's really high levels of music consumption. It's like 98% or something that most people listen to or interact with music in some way every day. Um, but the interesting thing is most, most people don't think of themselves as being, well, like people talk about music, they think of themselves as fans, but whether that connects them to the industry and, and the Australian market, I think there's a bit of a disconnect there. So I absolutely agree that we need to think about, um, mm. you know, developing audiences and just like kind of, in, I kind of see it more as like holding up a mirror and going, see, you actually do love music. This is how many times, this is how many times you listen to it. This is, you know, you listen to it on your way to work, when you're having a terrible <laughs> yeah, day, exactly. you listen to it. When you're working out at the gym, you listen to it. This thing, you know, really literally is the soundtrack to your life. Why don't you want to pay for it? Why don't you want to pay more for it? Um, why don't you participate in it more? Um, you know, and that's the really interesting thing for me is, and I think that's work for the industry to do with audiences um, and really looking at how we uh, connect that dot a bit, you know, because it's not that we, we're not struggling to get fans, it's that we're struggling to, um, I know, fans, to get fans seeing it as part of their mm. core identity. Yeah, that's a, a really interesting point. 
So can we talk about the Australian Music Industry Network? You're the former chair of AMEN. The network and the model has changed in recent <laughs> years. Do you think it mm-hmm. works as a model for as a national music voice? Look, I think its strength is that it's a connection or it's a, it's a group of eight state and territory state you know experts so you know i'm my job is not looking at the federal landscape or the national landscape my job is that i know new south wales very well just as all of my state counterparts they know their states very well that to me doesn't automatically mean that we as a group know a national federal strategy you know i think what we are is like a group of um, specific experts on on those states and territories so i think it works in that it like us being connected, sharing programs, um, you know, trying to, I guess, you know, not reinvent the wheel every time we do something because there's so many similarities between what we do. But I don't think that automatically means that we then go, okay, export is a major strategy of us. Like, yes, it's a part of my strategy is in New South Wales, but it's, you know, I think there's still a room for a national body. I think there's a lot of people thinking about um, that what that model looks like. You know, there's a, you know, the UK Music is a really great example of, um, you know, that sort of umbrella organisation that brings in a lot of uh, disparate music voices with, you know, very specific needs or um, remits and, and helps them, you know, be a united front on a, on a national level. And I think, like, there are a lot of great organisations who do work in that space already, but it would be great to include, um, yeah, more voices in that. You've been Managing Director of Music New South Wales for seven years. It's a massive role. Is there anything that you wish you knew when you first started? <laughs> um, uh, look, you know, I don't know if I... Oh, I guess I wish I knew a pandemic was coming. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, it's been a real, you know, I have been here seven years and um, it's been a fascinating time and every year I've learned something new, whether it's the you know changes happening outside, you know, m- the organisation with politics or, you know, the environment or with, uh, you know, yeah, other you know crises happening, um, you know, or whether it's stuff that's happening like within New South Wales or us doing new programs and trying to focus on new strategic initiatives. So yeah, there's always been something new, which is why I'm still here because I, I love learning new things and better understanding the industry and um, yeah, trying to keep uh, I guess having an impact on positive change. Can you talk about the relationship with Music New South Wales and one of your partners? Green Music Australia. I feel like some great conversations were happening in the music industry in terms of sustainability, reducing waste, using recyclable materials at festivals and events. But with COVID, the single-use plastic, the plastic masks, all that's returned, um, understandably because of hygiene, but all the artist writers, all that sort of stuff, it feels like we've taken a major, major step backwards. What do you think the next steps are from here in terms of trying to reconsider being an environmentally conscious music industry within the COVID context? Mm, Look, I think there's many facets to that 
conversation, one being, you know, like climate change is real. You know, if you look at um, what's going on currently in Australia um, around with flooding, you know, that's um, going to impact a lot of the music industry, um, you know, not just the sort of greenfield outdoor sites around Byron Bay and, you know, all that Northern Rivers area and Southern Queensland, but, you know, people touring, um, you know, climate change is a real, real uh challenge and threat to the music industry and I would really love to see people take it more seriously as part of their work rather than you know I have this thing where I'm like I would love the music industry to uh, one day be able to talk about its impact on the world rather than just itself <laughs> if that makes sense mm. like where where our focus is on climate change and and you know um, well-being and all those other sort of things that are a result or you know using our power to affect change in the world rather than just talking about how great we are as an industry and why people should fund us you know it's sort of like looking more outward than inward um that's the that's a long-term plan i love that as a vision that's incredible um and using our using our power to do that but i think you know we also do have power and a responsibility to do things now i think covid has yeah like you said single-use plastic um has gone i mean it's interesting some people have stopped using single-use plastic by just saying we don't provide anything now um you know bring your own water bottle bring your own cutlery we're not you know there's too many chances of covid contamination so do it yourself which i think is a really fascinating um you know i hate to use this phrase but personal responsibility around the environment you know mm. and um you know i think that is something that is really great to see more of um it'd be great to see more of that i think there's like a lot of people like feet you know doing incredible initiatives around touring so there's the solar um fund the solar fund that is being run by heidi from cloud control amazing initiative around you know making musicians more aware of their their um uh, carbon footprint uh with touring you know, whilst there has been increase in single-use plastic, and sadly no one's been touring, and that's actually been kind of great for the environment. So you know, there's this. You got to see these pluses and minuses, I guess, um, throughout various things. Uh, so I think, yeah, how we build back better is really part of that question. Um, how do we um, reduce our uh, footprint, but also still deliver outcomes, and you know, bring music to the people across Australia? Less CD manufacturing. Since CDs have kind of all but wrapped up. So there's a big music industry contribution there, although that wasn't my choice. <laughs> and I, I hear that tapes are now, <laughs> um, like actual tapes are being made more than CDs. So, you know, we've, we've come full circle. <laughs> That's wild, isn't it? And I know vinyl continues to increase. Right. I, I did actually hear that there was a slight CD increase last year, but I think we can just hold Adele responsible for that. <laughs> Maybe Ed Sheeran as well still sells a few CDs. Apparently a lot of the pressing vinyl backlog last year was because of Adele's record. Mm, I saw uh, some you know, hilarious TikToks from record store owners in the UK being like, why did I just get set, like 80 Adele records? Like no one's going to buy these. <laughs> I mean, I love I it too. Do. But... I think people do. Even people that don't have turntables will, if they're a big fan, they'll buy it because it looks like a collectible item that they just sort of put on, put in a frame or put on the mantelpiece and never even open it. Which is just a fascinating thing because, you know, when 
you know, I was growing up, yeah, having, you know, memorabilia and merch and all those, you know, physical artefacts of your music fandom were really important. And then we've had such a digital shift that, you know, how do you demonstrate who you are other than through like band t-shirts? And so now it's become about, oh, I'll own a record even if I don't have a record player. Like that blows my mind. And also in the context of the, the, uh, uh, I guess climate and you know sustainability conversation. Like, what role does um, that kind of mass production have in, mm. in in yeah? I guess trying to be better than just making things for things' sake. That's right. And how many tote bags do we actually need? No more. No more tote bags. <laughs> no, no more tote bags. But you know, it's been a unexpected shift or pressure on musicians, I guess, because noting that physical sales of records and CDs might have diminished. You want something to sell at gigs and try and still earn some revenue. So now musicians are not just becoming people who make records, but people who have a clothing line or, you know, no one would call it a clothing line. But essentially, if you're making a variety of T-shirts, you're almost becoming a, you know, a cottage industry clothing line and tote bag Mm -hmm. manufacturer as well as a a content maker. Mm -hmm. But what is the environmental impact on that, given we know the fashion industry is one of the worst Mm -hmm. industries for the environment? So, yeah, how Mm -hmm. does our role work in that? I have seen a few artist writers that are putting environmental sustainable clauses. Do you recommend that artists put those kind of conditions on their writer? Absolutely. I think use your power when and however you can for, you know, to live the life that uh, is aligned with your values. So if that means like requesting no plastic cups and no water bottles um, with your writer, do it. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, I think there's ways of doing merch um, that are way more environmentally sustainable than the, the, some, some of the models that we're seeing. You know, I know of a band that just went and bought like a hundred plain T-shirts from Vinnie's of all different sizes and printed this, their um, logos on those old T-shirts. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's like, you know, you can still do fandom but in a better way with like recycling fashion and not just like leaning into that um, fast fashion market. So I think there's just like, yeah, I'm all about like people rethinking the – Sorry, there's a, a, a siren going past. It's all happening. Sydney realness. <laughs> that's, that's, that's just a daily occurrence in the state. No, just kidding. Um, but yeah, I'm really fascinated with um, you know young entrepreneurs and bands and business people thinking about you know what are the quintessential I guess takeaways from music. And, you know, like how you listen, how you participate and rethinking those um, in a way that's better for the environment, better for people um, and, you know, exciting. Changing track here, last December there was an announcement that industry partners including APRA AMCOS, ARIA, PPCA and Australia Council via Support Act have commissioned a review on sexual harm, sexual harassment and systematic discrimination on contemporary music industry which is going to be released in June this year. You were part of the working group convened by Annabelle Hurd from PPCA. Can you tell me what you're hoping to see from this study? So the thing about the music industry review is that it is a chance for people to talk about not just what maybe they've experienced but also their ideas for change so you know we're looking to hear from people um, from all walks of the music industry um, whether you be a grassroots artist or whether you're running a label or whatever it is that people actually 
um, come forward and put their ideas for change down. Um, but the, also as a part of the review, it's actually look uh, unpacking how power abuse works in an industry like ours and looking mm. at the critical points of where, you know, things happen that are unsafe um, or, you know, where harm happens. And it's unpacking the reason. So that's the sort of the systemic discrimination part of like what systemic factors contribute to our industry sometimes being not a very safe place for people. So um, what I would like to see in the report, um, which, you know, obviously depends on what, what the consultants um, come up with, but is, you know, a bit of a, a summary of how we've gotten to where we are and, you know, what what that, uh, you know, where those um I guess critical points are and then also a plan for how we think we can make it better and you know what is individual responsibility what is like a company or organization's responsibility and then what's our collective responsibility Mm. as a whole sector in terms of changing this culture and you know all with the full acknowledgement that the music industry exists within society you know that these issues are also societal issues we're not going to fix everything but that there's things we can do as an industry to make it better and that we have an obligation and a responsibility to do so do you think the me too movement had a positive impact on the music industry what have you noticed kind of working in the sector pre me too post me too I mean, I've noticed that at least we have these conversations now, but I feel like we're much behind other industries like the film industry who kind of seem to pick things up a lot quicker. Mm. Look, I think the Me Too, like any kind of thing that draws attention to um, harm, it is like is good. It is absolutely a good thing for our industry to go through. We need to go through it. We need to, um, you know, better understand our industry and, and and know and address the harm that happens. I think with any of these kinds of movements, they're multifaceted. And if you're looking at, say, like Me Too in Hollywood, you know, that's looking at directors, but like what about, um, you know, all the other professionals that work in that space? Um, you know, is it, it's not just about famous actors, it's also about, mm-hmm. um, you know, staff and staff, on, on production or who are on set, you know, like what's the working conditions for them that contribute to, um, you know, uh, whether it's gender discrimination or whatever it is, that there's there are many layers to these problems and the, the fast, um, I guess, you know, rapid fire play out in the media doesn't actually solve the problem. Um, it draws attention to it, which is good, um, but it doesn't often go deep enough and that there's a lot more issues and often they're systemic um, that really need to be addressed and that's why the review we feel is something that's really timely for us. And it's also one of the first of its kind in terms of an industry coming together to take a look at itself and hold up a mirror to its own behaviour rather than a particular organisation or a particular company. So I think, you know, it's incredible to see the support we've had with the Music Industry Review, you know, particularly from, you know, Annabelle from Aria and Dean from APRA and Kirsty Rivers and, um, you know, Clive Miller from Support Act. Like we've had so many people backing this work and, you know, as well as like all the major labels and major um, tour promotion companies like festival people are getting behind this. They understand that it needs to happen and it's really uh, heartening to see the willingness for change. So, you know, all we can do is like help help it along and hope that, you know, this is the really important first phase of what change looks like for us. 
Back to Music New South Wales, it's really great to see sound advice sessions happening for regional centres like Tweed Heads, Lismore, Coffs Harbour, Armadale. So people in uh, the regional centres of New South Wales, you need to check it out. It must be incredibly challenging for your role to try and service the industry and the community statewide. I mean, it's a huge state and travel's been really limited. Can you comment on how the music scenes in some of those regional centres have been going in the last 12 months and what your kind of plans are and what you'd like to see in terms of providing support in regional areas? Mm -hmm. So we actually have seven regional music officers. So there's seven officers employed by Music New South Wales based in regional areas. Uh, It's been the first, um, I think, in Australia where we've had that many people based regionally um, and, you know, we frame it as employing local people to deliver local music outcomes and so it's really about connecting people and uh you know helping them connect with opportunities and um, develop their careers so that's been a really fascinating program that we've been running for i think nearly three years now um well it sort of went as a pilot and then we've now got seven officers and you know it the difference it makes is to having people on the ground. You know, I really hate that approach of, you know, the, the fly and fly out model where some someone from the city comes in and tells people living in regional areas how to have a career. I think that's really shit. <laughs> Excuse my language, but I think that's a really terrible way to operate. And yeah, we, and we yeah I'm with you on that too. And so we, we decided a couple of years ago that we weren't going to do it and that if we were really committed to um, supporting regional outcomes for um musicians then you know we actually had to muscle up and put um some money behind it and employ regional people to deliver those outcomes so um that's been a really great uh initiative for us and and a lot of learnings as well and i think you know like like many people in the music community regional areas are have been isolated and disconnected through COVID um, without regional touring networks happening, without Mm. regional tours, they've been even more isolated. So like those performance opportunities for regional artists have been less, I'd say, you know, more impacted. So yeah, it's really tough for venues in regional areas. Um, And I think, you know, that through this program, we've been able to try and bring people together to help, uh, I guess, take charge of their own communities you know like that's the one thing that i'm a big supporter of i was like i'm not going to make a music industry or music community for you you have to do that yourself but i'm here to help you do it and you know if you want live music in your in your town no one else is going to do it if you don't you know it really is you have to step step up into those roles and so that's really what we've been trying to encourage with this program and um i think we're seeing some really great um outcomes as well so yeah watch this space for more things happening in, in regional new south wales yeah it's brilliant i mean we really need those champions of music in in all of those areas and it's brilliant that they're able to access that support going back a little bit earlier in your career you were previously the development manager at fbi radio in sydney and you also worked on the smack awards and delivering the arts program what do you think some of your biggest learnings were from your time in community radio i think community radio is just so so vital to not just to our australian i guess uh, musical music um industry but but also to our identity as a, as a country, you know, there's having local stations is um, 
it gives people to, a chance to connect in a, in a different way with media and with the conversation about you know their town and where they're from and you know I loved working at FBI radio because it was um, so many people like it's mostly a station built of volunteers like many community community radio stations are and so much passion for music passion for community and people you know i guess congregating around that one sort of you know flavor of whatever the station is so i think um yeah it's so vital to our industry as a whole and yeah i loved i loved my time there as it, it was just like super fun and got to work on great projects and meet so many incredible people yeah i'm a big fan did you have any kind of pinch me moments with different touring artists coming in for interviews and that kind of thing? <laughs> um, FKA Twigs walked through at one point and I was just like, <laughs> <laughs> but um, generally I was in the back office and not in the studio, thankfully, so I didn't have to keep my cool. <laughs> <laughs> You've also worked in marketing. You've worked for Darwin Festival, Sydney Writers Festival, the Underbelly Arts Festival. I don't know how you fit all this in and you're not like 120. Um, can you share with us some learnings from this time? I'm particularly interested in what you learned as far as what you think really helped sell tickets and build audience from a marketing perspective. Was it some particular photos that you think really worked or the programming? Yeah. Uh, look, I think because, yeah, marketing is a special, you know, it took me a long time to realise that marketing was really about selling tickets. <laughs> yes. In um, a festival like that, yes, they're looking at the marketing person, they're looking at the ticket report and going, hello, what's happening here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it is a really interesting process. And I mean, I, the one there's a few sort of things that I would say, like, one, marketing is all about trust. You know, you how you present the brand, whether it's like not having typos or um, using great imagery and having clean design, that's about building trust with an audience and consistency. And so, yeah, that's really important. So even like throughout my time at Music New South Wales, you know, I care a lot about our brand and how we look and not having typos and all those sorts of things, um, which some people don't mind about, but I'm, you know, that's something I care about. Um, so I think, yeah, building trust with your audience and keeping consistency. But I also think like marketing is just one part of a, a greater engine when you're trying to do those things. And if you don't have great tickets, uh, sorry, great programming, it's very hard to sell good tickets. You know, it is, you can't fool people. So most of the time you're trying to build trust with them. You're not trying to sell something not like a dud product. You're trying to encourage them to think about whether they would enjoy it. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult process sometimes. And sometimes you're like, oh, we sold nothing to that show and that's a real bummer, but I guess we just didn't hit it on that one. You know, it didn't resonate with an audience mm. and trying to, trying to gauge that audience um, mood and feeling is really hard. And there are a lot of incredible programmers out there who are, you know, really switched on with um, what the mood of a, of a public is and you know, a ticket buying public. So yeah, kudos to them because it's really hard. It is hard. Sometimes I think some programmers are just a little ahead of the time. So, you know, they're booking things that they know are really exciting that they're booking things that excites them, but maybe audiences here aren't hip to that genre yet, you know. But also it's really yep. competitive in a festival context because there could be 50 shows that you're having to promote 
and mm-hmm. some are going to be key priorities to sell because there's a higher box office target others are going to be easy sales you've got your high profile ones but a lot of it's about education as well right so trying to explain to the punters why they should care about something mm-hmm. in the first place which i think is that sort of you know why i was talking about building trust is that you want to be able to be able to say to them trust me this is good and for them to go okay i don't know i'm not convinced but i'll come along mm. i think you can see that with a lot of the kind of destination festivals like your warm adelaide or golden plains or you know people will go every year or woodford folk festival because they know this is going to be a great event i almost don't care who's playing because i know that i'm going to have a good time this atmosphere is going to be amazing i know i'm going to discover things and i'm happy to go with the flow whereas for other festivals maybe you know, like a um, a rising festival here in Melbourne or a Vivid or something where everything's individually ticketed, you need a completely different marketing approach, right, for how you're going to sell those individual events. Yeah, yeah. Whether you're, you know, whether you've got trust in the brand um, or whether you've, you would use, you know, your destination festivals or those sort of ones that go, I'll come along and it doesn't matter what you program. Um like that's an easy sell in a way if you've got that reputation, Mm. which takes a long time to build. But, yeah, when you've got those more umbrella um, events where it's like you've got an umbrella brand with a lot of individual events, it's a really hard thing to um, pull together and, you know, you'll have some hits and you'll have some misses and that's just the nature of it. And, um, yeah, it's it's a a tricky world marketing, which is maybe why I don't do it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to sound like a bit of a David Bowie reference, but can you chat to us about your Berlin years? (laughs) Um, You specialised in social media and website design. So how do you think that experience and your marketing experience informs your leadership of Music New South Wales in terms of that digital presence? I did notice in your staff you have a dedicated content producer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, like I said before, I really care about... um, how we present ourselves as an organisation. And I think all those years of working in marketing and building websites for clients that I did freelance for a couple of years, um, you know, I really started to understand like what's needed in order to start building that trust and building that brand around it. And, you know, I was very lucky I came to Music New South Wales when it, was, it existed before I came, um, but I felt like I was able to bring a bit of a, um, you know, my marketing background into it to help. Uh, I guess, establish it even more so as the trusted and respected state music body. Well, it is about relationships, isn't it, marketing? It's about building that relationship with audiences. And I guess with an organisation like Music New South Wales, there's a responsibility there that you are representing that music industry. So you're representing it to everyone, musicians, Mm -hmm. music industry workers, government, the public. So being able to represent us and be professional, look good is, you know, it's just essential. But what was your time in, in Berlin like? You were there for two years, is that right? Yeah, nearly three, but yeah, yeah. Um, I had the best time ever. <laughs> I, I worked um, freelance for Australian, I just made websites basically for a few people and um, made some music myself and just, uh, you know, had a bit of time off from, I'd been working back-to-back sort of festival contracts for a couple of years. Um, you know, I cut my teeth in music festivals with uh, the 
Cockatoo Island Festival in 2005 and then two Great Escape Festivals back to back and then sort of went across to the, um, the Writers Festival and Underbelly House Festival and done, you know, it was just like a lot. So um, I was like, I just need a little break to focus on, think about what I want to do. Um, so yeah, Berlin was that for me. So you're also a musician. How do you feel working in behind the scenes roles affects your creative practice? It affects it a lot. Um, I talk about music all day long. So often my, um, I guess, release and, you know, um, way, way I am creative these days is not music. Um, I think that will change, you know, at some point. But, yeah, these days I, I'm much more of a cook. I'm a, I'm a bit of a hobby chef. <laughs> so I focus my energy on doing what I feel are like, you know, not necessarily related to my job because it, it is very hard to, um, you know, I'm not trying to have a music career as a as a performer or songwriter. It's something I do for joy for myself, but then, yeah, so I do other things for joy as well, more as a, a antidote to a rather stressful job. So what was your lockdown experience like? Was it mainly baking or did you get back into some music making? Not that I'm sure you didn't have much spare time because you were probably on Zoom the entire time. Well, to be honest, I didn't have much spare time. I think I was busier during lockdown than I was pre-lockdown. You know, um, my Julia Robinson from the Australian Festival Association and I, we ran I Lost My Gig, um, which is the sort of data capture project that launched in March 2020. And that kept us busy for a couple of months as well as then trying to look at, um, you know, what New South Wales needed. So, you know, it was just basically campaign after campaign after campaign um and you know i ate very well <laughs> maybe a little too well during um my lockdown but um you know it it was certainly a, it's been a really really intense busy time can you tell us more about i lost my gig mm-hmm. so we actually stole the idea like all good ideas we stole it um so out of when south by southwest cancelled um i think it was a couple of weeks earlier um we like due to covid we saw a you know a link going around which was um called i lost my gig and we're like that's actually really smart we should be capturing data that's you know with all these Mm. events candling so i think it was like the 12th or the 13th of march when they cancelled um you know major events over 500 and that's when we went oh wait a second we need to we need to do something and so I built the website and the survey and with with Julia Robinson we did it in two hours and we launched it straight away um you know it was and so by the end of that weekend I think we'd already had like 15 million dollars of lost income recorded um and throughout that whole sort of first lockdown period we ended up tallying I think it was like 355 million dollars of lost income and lost jobs um and lost opportunities um which was an incredibly, uh, you know, devastating project to work on. And, and you know, it really, uh, just hearing the stories, you know, we had nearly 13,000 people um, record their, you know, gig losses um, through that site. And, you know, we then used that data to advocate to government about the need for JobKeeper. Um, so we, you know, we would never take credit for that, but um, it's, I think it certainly helped. Um, definitely help like an understanding an understanding of how people were being impacted and um you know it was a really really yeah like i said a difficult project to be on because it was like a you know julia and i were thinking about 
what is a pandemic and how does that affect us, you know, like having the freak out that everyone else was having whilst also sort of working, you know, 20 hours a day trying to get this this um, project up and running and, you know, media were all over it, which was great because it helped draw attention to how the um, performing, live performance industries were being impacted. Mm. And so, yeah, we, you know, we were quoted in um, press releases and, and um, you know, government statements about the impact and, and about consequent um, funding programs. So we feel that was a really, really um, effective uh, sort of initiative that really was made up in two hours and <laughs> we had no idea what we were doing. But yeah, we learned a lot through that. Well, it was a really significant project and I'm super grateful that you did it. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, some of the data that came throughout that time period as well around artist superannuation was also really illuminating and also quite devastating. And the government made the offer that people could withdraw super, but then we saw a lot of that data that a lot of musicians had less than $10,000 of superannuation anyway. Have you had any kind of conversations or thoughts about musicians and superannuation? And it's not just musicians, it's actually all freelancers, really. I think there is a lot of work to be done around job security, income security, um, and I guess that, you know, it, like superannuation is one part of that like sustainability conversation for that, you know, people working in the gig economy. I think what we really realised um, through the I Lost My Gig project in particular is that how many people weren't represented by organisations, that they were cross-industry, you know, hearing from people who like build stages for um, musical theatre on the weekend but then also like go on tours with festivals during festival season and and so when they re- talk about what they do they're sort of across everything about like who's actually taking care of them um, and that became really apparent and it's something that we've spoken a lot about like with I Lost My Geek is like how do we better support the the people working in the gig economy um, and it's yeah i think it's a larger piece of work that like slightly um beyond me at this second because it's just like it feels like it needs attention and new thinking and um you know that's when you in like you were saying before around the living wage and universal basic income Mm. that stuff that's when it really becomes important it's those people who aren't protected um by you know employment law because they're on a contract they're just you know casual workers or whatever like they're the ones who've really really suffered and I still think about you know some of the stories we heard during that time of people you know losing work and losing basically their what they've been working on for like 40 years and then having no career or prospects and yeah it's really it's really an awful thing and then realizing they don't have any super saved up as well because um, it's not just musicians is the point. It's like there's all these other people. So how do you take care of yourself through all of this? Because it's a lot for you to be managing your staff, managing yep. your team, yep. feeling the yep. weight of wanting to represent everybody that's involved <laughs> in music, advocating to government, taking care of yourself, also setting up the I Lost My Gig, going to the Amen meeting, speaking to your other state reps, how does Emily look after Emily? Oh, you make me I feel tired when you say it like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Um, look, I have pretty strict rules with myself around overtime. So I um, I try very hard to work within my nine to five. I generally try not to look at emails after unless there's like a, a, you know, a global crisis happening, um, which is kind of why there was such 
widespread burnout. I think everyone threw their normal routines out the window and just went where the energy was needed. Um, but I've now sort of tried to rebalance after, you know, two years of crisis mode. Um, and yeah, pretty strict with my working hours. You know, I, I try and go to the gym as much as I can. Um, you know, I, I, I'm really big on um, finding joy and frivolity where I can, you know, whether that's seeing friends or dinner parties or going to gigs or whatever makes you happy, swimming in the ocean, um, really just leaning into those things wherever you can because the work's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to get easier. It just, it needs to be done. So, you know, if you're in for the long haul, you need to survive. That, and that email inbox isn't going to go anywhere. No. <laughs> No. no, no, it's always going to be there. And I have a, no. I have a bit of a rule of like, unless it's a crisis, don't, don't like, you can wait till tomorrow. Um, and you know, there are times when there are genuine needs to, to keep working and work outside of those hours or to, you know, you've got to reschedule a bunch of things or, you know, whatever it is like, and go with it when it when when it's needed but if it's not don't be a martyr because you just end up burning yourself out and the thing I learned through all this work is that you're no good to anybody if you're burnt out you actually have an obligation to take care of yourself so that you can be better for your community it's great advice burnout is something that I'm continuously having to struggle with and manage because there's so many things I want to do and then how do I make it all work and it's hard yeah, I think as well, you know, this idea of self-care is puts the onus on individuals to fix their problems. But I think also, like, we need to look at what is a reasonable expectation of staff and of people in our industry. It's like, actually, there's broader systemic change that needs to happen because self-care is, a, I guess, well, burnout is the product of capitalism. <laughs> so if you're looking at, um, you know, why everyone's so exhausted, so it's not sustainable how we work. It really isn't, and something needs to change because this is just ongoing. And we're gonna we're gonna lose people from our industry. We're gonna lose people from the creative arts who can't keep working like this, and that's a real worry for me. So, I'm really interested in like how we um, investigate and explore like better work practices, so we actually have people who stay in our industry and that they can have career longevity. I've got one more question for you. I wanted to ask you about the time that you put on a festival in your own backyard. <laughs> Who was on the lineup? <laughs> oh gosh. So that was when I was like 21. And that, there was a bit of a backstory to that one because I, um, I was dating this guy at the time and he was a drummer in a band and he went overseas for three months and he left me and my best friend his car. And he said, you know, here's my car. You guys can just drive it around. And we're like, yay, so fun. We've got a car. <laughs> Freedom. <laughs> and the very next day after he left, someone stole it and firebombed it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, it was completely burnt out and complete, a complete wreck. And so we were like, shit, 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 shit. <laughs> How are we going to buy him a new car? Shit. <laughs> And so we held a fundraiser festival in my backyard called Carbom. Um, and we made four grand to buy him a new car. <laughs> and we had it the day <laughs> and we had it the day he got back from overseas. So he was like, Oh, a party, great. And then we're like, by the way, it's for your car. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, it was pretty fun. And, and like that actually was I mean, I was already working in a festivals at the time, but um I met so many people through that. Um, event, you know, I would live in this like place out in Tempe and, you know, sort of 
you know, West New South Wales, uh, Sydney, sorry. And, you know, there was, had a, we had a massive backyard. So, like, we need to put on a festival and it was sort of right near the airport. So we didn't have any sound complaints. And, yeah, we had eight bands play that we just found around the you know around Newtown and um asked them to come and play and we paid them as well as you know raising money mm-hmm. and you know yeah it was it was hilarious now that I think about it but then we had Car Bomb 2 because it was so fun so we actually had two festivals in my <laughs> it was a sequel <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> but yeah I, I met so it. many people I met so many people working through that you know the people I still work with you know in a, more, in a much more professional con- context now um but yeah but also best was- girlfriend ever well that's debatable but yeah (laughs) welcome party plus replacement car I mean that was not your fault it didn't feel it felt like it at the time I was like oh shit (laughs) (laughs) that's an incredible story and thank you for sharing it with us and thank you so much for all of the work that you do and for joining me on the control podcast it's been so nice to chat with you oh thank you so much Chelsea it's been a pure delight thanks for having me that was Emily Collins in control for more info please check the links to music New South Wales in the show notes please subscribe to control on your preferred podcast platform and if you have a moment please rate and leave a review it helps others find the podcast This episode was recorded on Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung land and I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and all First Nations peoples. Until next time, this is Chelsea Wilson signing off.